1: There are approximately 1.2 million firefighters in the United States. Of that number, 70% are volunteers. Of the 60 firefighter deaths in 2017, 32 were volunteers. Although major cities have paid firefighters, Medium-sized cities, small towns, suburbs, and rural America are served by largely volunteer or combined career and volunteer departments. Today we'll be talking with such a volunteer firefighter who is also a storyteller, committed to explaining how first responders can guide us in ways to act more effectively in our own lives. He advises, and it is his experience, that it is helpful to approach life's emergency with the intention to remain calm and act creatively. Prepare yourself for some insightful and practical wisdom on how to do just that is what this interview will reveal with our guest, Hirsch Wilson. Hirsch Wilson is a former ballet dancer, along with his wife, Lori and is now a 30-year veteran volunteer firefighter EMT. He's with the Hondo Fire Department in Santa Fe County, New Mexico. He is also a writer, speaker, and consultant who has worked extensively with leadership teams from a variety of organizations, including IBM Japan, the US Postal Service, and the CIA, to name a few. He also writes a monthly column on dogs for the Santa Fe New Mexican. He's a co-author with his late father Larry Wilson of Play to Win, Choosing Growth Over Fear in Work and Life, and is the author of Firefighter Zen, A Field Guide to Thriving in Tough Times. Join us for the next hour as we explore the practical wisdom in navigating the challenges of life with firefighter Hirsch Wilson. I'm speaking with Hirsch at his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Hirsch, welcome.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here and it's in these pandemic times, just great to talk to another human being.
1: <laughs> Isn't it true? I mean, here we are remote, uh, yeah. and I, I'd love to give you just a full-on hug because um, <laughs> I just want to say, I just think that you have written um, for what, for me, is the best book of the last decade. Um, you have just wrapped up perennial wisdom and practical advice in little over 200 pages. And I, I truly consider you and your life experience as a master guide in sharing this essential wisdom and how we might choose to live our lives. And I also want to add, in the 47 years that I've been producing and hosting New Dimensions, I've not made as strong a recommendation for a book as I'm now making. Well, thank you so much. You're most welcome, but thank you. And, you know, we cannot possibly cover in the short time we have together all that I've gained from your writing and life experience, but I hope that together we'll be able to share some exciting tidbits. Um, So... With that said, let us just jump right in. Great. Great. Uh, first of all, I want to I ask you, it was your wife, Lori, it was her suggestion that you become volunteer firefighters. Uh, so what was your response to that <laughs> suggestion?
2: Well, Lori and I had both, uh, you know, we, we uh, were both dancers and we, we, you know, finished our dance careers in our late 20s, early 30s. And we moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico for work. Lori had a job. I was writing, doing freelance writing. And Lori had a job as uh, working at a conference center just outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. And what happened was uh, a guest fell and broke her ankle. So uh, there was nobody there who had any training at all, any medical training or first aid. And so it was a pretty embarrassing situation. They got they called the local ambulance. They took her in. But they couldn't do any any care prior to the ambulance getting there so lori who is uh, a very determined woman decided that this was never going to happen again so she took a six-month emergency medical technician class and at the end of that six months um, the instructor who was a firefighter said lori you know if you want to keep your skills up you ought to join a volunteer fire department well when he said that lori heard that both of us should join a fire department (laughs) which uh, she came and told me, and I, I had hardly ever heard of a volunteer fire department. And I couldn't picture myself as somebody holding an ax breaking down a door. And like all the men in my family, I had a thing about blood and gore. Um, but she dragged me to the first meeting and we walked into the bay of the fire department where all the trucks are and they had moved all the trucks out and they're having the meeting. And it was this eclectic group of people uh, and this was their medical team. And they were sitting around at a table, and I sat down, and they were passing around a picture of a car accident they had had the week before and had been a, a fatal accident, so it was, it was tragic. And they were all looking at it and talking about the call, and they passed the picture. And Lori was just fascinated. We had the picture of the, the deceased in the car, which is typical firefighter stuff. And she was fascinated by it. And then she passed it to me, and I saw this dead guy, and I almost passed out so i you know she she I, I wanted to leave right then but she grabbed my arm and said maybe you could just drive the trucks and you don't have to do anything else so that was that was our introduction to the fire department Lori was extremely enthusiastic uh and i was much more hesitant but i stuck with it and uh and it became um what i call about it i said it was it was like the tumblers in the universe fell into place that This is something I knew I needed to be doing to be doing my part uh, on this planet.
1: Well, thank you. I know that you did then maybe three years of training and really getting yourself acclimated Mm -hmm. to being in such tragic situations. Um, When when that first... pager went off because you carry a pager and you get a dispatch. When that first pager came off, uh, it was, I think, in the early evening. And you both realized, oh, wait a minute. This is a (laughs) 24-7 sort of thing. So what was the response there?
2: Well, we had just gotten voted in. And we had passed on our training. And this is about three or four months in. And now we can respond to calls. So we went home. We had dinner. We celebrated. And all of a sudden, about 9 o'clock at night, uh, we heard this horrendous screeching noise that we did not re- recognize. And we looked, and on the kitchen table, both our pagers were vibrating. And then this woman's voice came on saying, Honda Fire Department, there's a car fire uh, at mile market 287. So Lori's first comment was, they're going to page us at night? <laughs> and that was, that was kind of our introduction to the fact that we were going to be on duty 24-7, and we would get a lot of pages at night. Uh, and we'd have lots of nights of uh, no sleep or very little sleep and lots of mornings where we sat around in the office drinking coffee. And that's about all we could handle.
1: Can I, can I ask you, sure. um, you know, I live in Santa Rosa, California, mm-hmm. and a big fire zone, wildfires. And we've had people respond from all over the country. And did I see a Hondo fire truck up in Santa Rosa at some time during this? I think this? there's
2: a, a Santa Vic County truck. Uh, and I know there are a couple other New Mexico trucks.
1: Okay, yeah. Yeah. It was just fascinating to go into one of the big box store parking lots filled, filled Mm -hmm. with fire trucks. Yeah, And I would wander slowly through them and look at all the insignias from all over the country. It was so heartening Mm -hmm. for us to walk in a big box store or something and see these very tired fire people and and to just thank them. Uh, it, It just... I I'm crying right now it's just so incredible. I want to say that uh when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died uh right in that moment I was reading your book and and it was a moment that um I was reading about the poster That you have written about, uh, that was put up. It really helped me to to read. uh, What is it? Carry on, and is Mm -hmm. that? uh, Can you tell us about that poster?
2: Sure. So um, it's. uh, uh, I think I know the one you're referring to, Um, and it's "Stay calm and carry on." That's it. Um, What's What's interesting? I mean, you you see that in post on T-shirts now, and the history of that poster was. Uh, it was developed in England right before the Second World War when uh, England was afraid they were going to be invaded by the Germans. And so the poster was kind of embla- uh, uh, kind of uh, embraced the British spirit of staying calm and carrying on, um, of, being, of being calm in the face of tragedy, being calm in the face of what what could come. Now it never got used because Germany never invaded England. But it was discovered in a bookstore in Northern England a decade ago, and it's kind of a very pop- popular uh, poster. It, it perfectly describes um, the firefighter uh, mentality that in order to do our work, whether it is uh, you know, fighting a fire or a, bad, or a bad car accident or facing what we're facing now politically, the, the, we need to stay calm and carry on. We need to, we need to not panic. We need to do the work. Um, and that's how we get through a tough times.
1: And I think you go on in your writing uh, about how how we do carry on, and that is to to show up and to practice compassion and to do our best to accept that we might fail, but we uh, keep taking this what I think you call authentic stance. Can you can you elaborate?
2: Sure. So. Um, I think in, in the, I think it's in the Talmud where they say that we're, we're not responsible for the ills of the world, but we have an obligation to help. Uh, and I think, I think that's, that's kind of the core of not only what I believe is the firefighter stance, but I think is our stance as human beings, that, um, we're here to help people. We're here to serve uh, where, where true joy comes from is in those two things. It's not through material things, uh, although we've been, you know, we live under the illusion that it is. We live under the illusions that a new car, a new job, um, uh, uh, a, a big house will, will give us happiness. And that's just a very illusory thing. What, what where true joy I- it lies is in helping others and being our authentic selves. Helping others.
1: I'm here with firefighter Hirsch Wilson. He's the author of Firefighter Zen, a field guide to thriving in tough times. And I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Hirsch Wilson. He's the author of Firefighter Zen. And if you want to know more about his work and his writings, you can go to his website, hirschwilson.com, and he spells his first name H-E-R-S-C-H, hirschwilson.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Hirsch, I would like to talk about fire, and the dragon that fire is, and i've i'm would love for you there's there's this many passages that I would love for you to read, but I've picked out one passage that i am requesting you to read about fire and the dragon that it is
2: sure, so um the you know firefighters fire departments have been organized in the United States since seventeen thirty six and um, the first volunteer fire department was formed by Benjamin Franklin. Um, and it was all because of fires. Uh, and that is why we, why we exist, although it's changing. So um, I wrote, fire attacks all your senses. You feel, smell, hear, taste, and see it. Fire is a living thing. You watch it dance as walls and roofs collapse. Flames leaping 30 feet into the night sky, radiating heat so intense that it makes you turn away. It crouches in the corner of a room, dark red and glowering, shrouded in black smoke, whispering to you, break a window, open a door, and let me suck the air out of the universe. You feel terror when its flames turn and bend towards you in the tall grass. It wants to see you run, knowing you're no match. It will catch you. Fire will burn until there's no more fuel. It will not stop, it will not tire, give it fuel, and it will grow. It will devour houses, forests, and neighborhoods. Fire can eat them all. Fire is the destroyer. This is the reason we have fire departments, not just emergency departments. Fire is the real and mortal enemy. Deep in our ancestral DNA lies the terror of this dragon.
1: I love that. Thank you for reading that. And and in in this, um, how how can we possibly be prepared for something uh, and or or even trained for something when we don't even know where or when it's coming at us. Um, I know that you talk about plan B thinking or other things. Can, can you elaborate or advise us? What can we do? We don't sure. know when and what is coming.
2: Sure. But I think you're describing life. Uh, and I think the pandemic we're going through right now um, is just that that lesson writ large. Uh, If you remember in March, March 13th or 15th of 2020, right? We all had plans and we all had calendars and all those calendars, all those plans got thrown away, right? Uh, And we are stuck there saying, we don't know what the future is going to be like. Well, that in fact is is on an individual level what happens to all of us. Um, I I think I write in the book um, a quote by, James Baldwin, that says, you know, society's job is to be stable, but the artist's job is to remind people that there's nothing stable under heaven, um, and that is that is kind of the truth. So, so what do we do about that? When we realize that, what do we do about that? Sometimes it's not it's not about we can specifically plan for events on the West Coast, plan for fires, Florida, plan for hurricanes, um, everywhere, plan for pandemics. But there's a, a, a position of just resiliency, uh, of understanding what life really is about. It's about change. It's about unpredictability. It's incredibly fragile. Um, you know, the, the firefighter motto is stuff happens. And that just, it's, it's, it's that daily occurrence of, of the 911 call where we know something's happened to somebody that really informs how we think about life.
1: You you really mentioned in in the beginning something about um, being useful, right? And I I know that people often ask like in they're they're in the middle of their own personal tragedy their house is burned down or or, or a car accident or whatever it is, uh, and they say oh why did this happen why did this happen and you have come up with uh, a phrase that I loved you say um, the first thing you say is. I'm so terribly sorry. And then you say, how can I be of help? Right. And, and that's all about being useful, isn't it? Um, uh, so what can you say? I'd love for you to say more about why it's important to, to, for us to be useful.
2: Right. So I think at a large level, we, we in this, especially in this country, we live under the illusion that it's about, about individuals, that, that, that we prize the individual, the Lone Ranger, uh, conquering the West. When, and that's simply not true. Everything we've done great in this country has been done in community, in collective. Um, and everything as an individual that we do, I think that is really memorable for us and most meaningful is when we're helping somebody else. So to me, the phrase, how can I help, is probably one of the most important spiritual shifts that uh, we can experience, when all of a sudden we're not thinking about ourselves, not engaged in our ego, but we're there to help somebody else. On the fire service, most people join the fire department because of the adrenaline, uh, because of the excitement, the big red trucks, flashing lights, knocking doors down, but people who, who stay a long time in the fire service realize that it's about helping others, that, that the sustenance they get in in being there in people's worst times and being able to help, to being able to ask, ask that question, how can I help? It's really what keeps them going.
1: And how can I help? And sometimes uh, being of help may not seem significant to us. Mm-hmm. But to another, uh, you, you tell a story, I think, Otis Maxfield, uh, right. that your father had met, yeah. and he was a doctor. And do you remember that story? Oh, I absolutely. It was-
2: I, I learned it when I was 12. It stuck with me all my life. Otis Maxfield was a well-known psychiatrist, and he was a friend of my father's. And, and they met at a hospital, and they were just having lunch together. And two, um, uh, a nurse and an orderly, were bringing this woman uh, from one word to another word. And this woman was big, and she was half undressed and sweating and swearing and spitting at the, at the RNs, right? And just one of those people that you, you would see and want to avoid. Well, Otis stood up, and he went over and gave her a hug and said, how are you doing, Harriet? And, uh, and, and a couple of things that just have always stuck with me. One was his innate act of kindness, Right. His innate act of kindness to go and, and hold this woman, to others who others would be avoiding, and and the other part of it was, he used her name, and in medicine often we don't see patients we don't we see patients as this person's a broken leg this person's a cardiac um, has a cardiac problem we describe them by their symptoms we don't use their name and I think just the idea of using somebody's name I you know acknowledges them. And identifies them, uh, and really was such a, an amazing act of of empathy and, and kindness that it's it kind of it's one of those stories my dad told me that really stuck with me.
1: Well, I, I'm thinking too that she was suffering uh, and and displaying certain things, and we want to recoil from that. Mm-hmm. And um, you talk about uh, the idea that we might have a quota of suffering that we might have a limit to what we can take of the mm-hmm. suffering of both ourselves and others. Sure. And can, can you talk about, um, the idea of suffering and, and just staying with that?
2: Yeah. Um, I think, and, uh, Buddha said that life is suffering and, and a fire department reinforces that because we understand really quickly that everybody has a story. Everybody's going through and some going through something. So in the firefighter world, I I think there was an article written that law officers, police, see uh, on approximately 180 critical calls uh, in their service time. And it's probably the same for firefighters. And these are the really tragic, really bad, awful, awful calls. Um, And as a a kind of a country, as a a vocation and as a country, we're not really good. at knowing how to deal with tragedy. Um, We've all been taught because it's been a very male-dominated, hierarchical profession, to stuff it, to not talk about it, um, uh, to pretend it didn't get to you. And the fact is that trauma and tragedy will get to you. It will come out. It's guaranteed. Um, There was a, on the fire service, the default way to take care of yourself is to drink. And in one survey from the, um, one of the firefighter f- fire unions said that in one month, over 50% of the firefighters had, had binge during in that month. So that's how we've normally been taught to deal, right? And not only firefighters, but all of us. So um, we have to learn how, because the, the, remember the premise is, we are all going to deal with tragedy. We're all going to deal with trauma. And we need to know how to de- we No, we're not taught anywhere. I don't remember being taught anything important about dealing with that. So we need to learn how to do that. And I, I think um, firefighters, um, the ones I work with, we have a process. We have a way of thinking about it. Uh, part of it is understanding that's going to happen. And we need to be resilient. And secondly is to know kind of what's going to happen afterwards. And that I go, to in, uh, go into that in the book.
1: And when... Don't you have, in firefighting, you have something called incident, um, not rehabilitation, but right. something, what is it yeah. called?
2: It's called critical incident stress debriefing. Um, so after a, a bad call, anybody on the department can can call for what we call a CISD. Uh, and that is an opportunity for us to get together, talk about the call, uh, check in with people to make sure they're okay, and to follow up with people if um, if we think they're having problems. But it's it's the talking about it uh, that is, is astonishing to go through because a lot of these really, really bad calls are hallucinogenic in the sense of you have big gaps in your memory what happens because it's you're so focused, you're so generalized, there's so much going on that you miss parts of it in your memory. And so a, CISD, a good CISD helps us put the whole narration together what happened, what we did, uh, what we could have done better. And and um, that really helps the healing process. It's not the end all, but it's good. So.
1: I, I'm thinking also when you say you miss part of it in your your memory, your body remembers. It's, body it's remembers. held in your body. It's somatic. Uh, yep. And yep. And I know you talk in the book about how you call each other. You kind of drag each other to breakfast and yep. you just kind of... In a way, it's it's like this tribe, and you encourage us all to to have uh, a tribe, to have a community that we can call on and and build that.
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think my, my thinking is that you can get away with kind of the lone ranger life when you're not going through hard times, right? It's easy, right? But when tough stuff happens, like what we're going through right now, we it turns out and it's vital to have community, to have people to talk to.
1: Exactly. Thank you. I'm here with Hirsch Wilson. He's a fire volunteer firefighter in New Mexico. And he is the author of Firefighters Zen, a field guide to thriving in tough times. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. <music> with Hirsch Wilson, he's the author of Firefighter Zen, and Hirsch, I would like to talk about chapter under the smoke. What does yeah. that mean? Well,
2: let me tell you about you know in the firefighter world and how that translates to us. So, you know, structure fire inside a building, um, heat and smoke they rise, and so the hottest part of the of the room is going to be towards the ceiling, and then it kind of builds down so in sometimes in order to see the fire or to, or to rescue people we need to be underneath the smoke uh, where there's clear air and it's a little cooler so we literally crawl on our bellies or crouch down on our knees to get into a room with a hose right that allows us to see what's going on to see the seat of the fire or to see if um if someone needs is in actually in the room and in the same way when when chaos happens right? Um, it's incredibly confusing. You take any incident, I mean, whether it's, it's a cancer diagnosis or something bad happens, um, it's not all laid out for us in, in kind of neat beginning, middle, and end. It's chaotic. So what we need to do is learn to stop, get underneath the smoke, see what's really happening, right? In order that we can do the right thing, in order that we can act. So it's just a simple metaphor for that.
1: I I know that you describe like arriving at a scene and often there's somebody in the scene that's taking command and they walk around the whole scene and assess things. They don't just kind of jump right in.
2: Right, right, Uh, right.
1: So describe what what that's like to be at a scene like that.
2: So uh, when you go to incident command school, where you're trained to actually run a whole scene. One of the things they do is say, they simulate a scene, a fire. And they'll put a hula hoop down and they'll have you stand inside the hula hoop. And you can't leave that hula hoop, um, no matter who's calling for you, no matter who's hurt, no matter what mom is screaming that her child's in the building, you stay in that hula hoop so that you can see the entire picture, you can see the entire problem. Uh, and that's often what we don't do uh, when we when there's something uh, tragic going on. Or even now during the pandemic, we, we get so wrapped up in wanting to act or or listening to voices in our head that we don't kind of step back, take our time, see what's really going on before we act.
1: And that's such a good one, like, because that's kind of a, I, I guess I think of it at like, in you know, a hurricane, the eye of the storm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's that, the storm. that yeah. quiet, quiet place. Where you're able to to see more, you're you're able to to broaden your vision, and uh, you know we're currently living our lives in warp speed. I mean, we're busier and more inundated with information all the time. In fact, you talk about our, our smartphones. Are are like uh, fire dispatchers. Exactly. Just, it's, yeah. it's like right there in our hand, we know everything that's happening all over the world instantly, and mm-hmm. we can either like choose to just you know furiously run down the road, or we can be numb, or what is another choice that might be more effective that you could uh, help us r- reveal to us?
2: I think that's a real problem right now, and I know I got caught up. In the beginning of the pandemic, of just being attached to my phone, I, you know, there's a thing called FOMA, fear of missing out, and I didn't want to miss out on anything. Um, well, there's you pay a co- there's a cost for that, and the cost is comp- being adrenalized, uh, you know, always being hooked into your phone, uh, just always intellectually going at mock, mock to hair on fire. Um, so what my what Lori has taught me to do. I get fifteen minutes of news in the morning, and fifteen minutes at night, right? And and I th- I think it's it's having that mental discipline to say I'm not going to let the news run my news cycle run my life. I'm not going to, and I think it's important. It's like I'm not going to let all the stuff that comes at me during the day, good, bad, indifferent, uh, all that chaos, uh, define who I am, right? It's going to flow around me. I'm not going to let it. F- flow through me uh, that's a learning process uh, but it's the same thing with firefighters I and mean, we can't when you go to a really bad call there's so much going on um, we have to stay centered we have to see what the problem really is and we can't get distracted by the loudest people yelling you have to stay kind of focused and intentional
1: right it's going back to that keep calm and carry on yep, yep. Uh, a mantra so to speak there's a part of the book that you talk about um, grief, and um, and besides grief, and we all know the El- Elizabeth Kubler Ross, uh, mm-hmm. the five stages of grief, yeah. and all yeah. of that. But what you really bring out, and oh man, I don't think I've read it anywhere else. Although I know other people have written about it, and you talk about time shows up, and you talk about like in that grief process after all the formalities of death you know the funerals the obituaries the eulogies the gatherings the the comforting all of that and then suddenly all of their they're all done and here we are alone and um it's i know this place Mm -hmm. many of us know this place is that where time we have all this time and we're still not quite in our bodies so to speak
2: yeah i think um what i've learned about grief because i think firefighters go through the grieving process all the time uh, on on really bad calls and what i've learned is that there is that time after everything's put away and uh and we've done all our conversations and we've even gone to funerals um where you're by yourself, right? Where you're ultimately by yourself with your thoughts. And I think that's a, that can be a crushing time. Um, I had a a firefighter once said, after a debriefing, a bad call. uh, He said, he got up and said, you know, the next three months are going to suck. And, and that means a couple of things. It means the next three months are going to be hard. There's no way to get around it. It's going to be hard. You're going to have nightmares you're not going to be able, sometimes you're not going to be able to sleep. All those things are going to happen. That's just truth. But he also said, it's just the next couple of months. And and I think that's important to say, you know, we're designed to heal. We're designed to get better. Um, and time will do that. It's not easy. Um, I wish it upon no one, but we're all going to experience it. But we will get through it. We're designed to heal. And I, I always say that I don't like the word recover. Um because I think, though, I think that kind of implies that we go back to a former state, but you don't. Um, trauma and tragedy changes you. Uh, you incorporate that into yourself. I think most of us become uh, kinder. Uh, we become more intentional. Uh, we sometimes we become quieter. All of a sudden, you know, our our egos are are shrunk a little bit, if you will, uh, and. We've become, uh, I think, better human beings. but it's, 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 it's you, you have to go through pain sometimes to get to that.
1: You mentioned uh, learning to be kinder, and I know that you talk about that in in the book. Um, and you 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 bring up something i I loved. Um, you called it kindness killers. So can you mention some of the kindness killers that that we can run across in our lives?
2: Well, they're mostly, they, they come from us, right? So it is uh, when we're kind and someone's not kind back to us, right? Um, then, then all of a sudden we get, our ego gets involved and we say, how dare you not mm-hmm. acknowledging the fact that I opened the door for you, right? Uh, so that becomes a kindness killer. Um I think another kindness killer is expecting reciprocity from the universe, right? Because I do good things. Uh, I'm kind. I should get that back from the universe. And it just doesn't work that way. Um, the goal is to be uh, because, because it's, you ask yourself, who do I want to be in the world? And I might not be the bravest. And I might not be the smartest, but I can be the kind. I can be kind. Uh, and right now, we need a lot of kindness, so
1: you also talk about um, radical kindness, and you have three three things that you talk about, and uh, one, do it daily, uh, but another one, that second one, keep your ego out of it, and you say something I don't think I've read this anywhere else you say the ego is the self. weaponized weaponized and you say it defends it attacks it rationalizes it lies its job is to protect you from any wounds real or imagined right Uh, exactly yeah so so help us with that one that one wow
2: right so i think uh between being our authentic selves and who we put out to the world because we're expected, and a lot of this is about men, but we're expected to be tough, brilliant, the smartest person in the room, uh, the most invulnerable person in the room, uh, to show no weakness. Uh, And that is our ego, because no one is that way. (laughs) (laughs) And I think our authentic selves, we're vulnerable. uh, We feel pain. We've been through a lot. We have self-doubt. And I think I think it's our ego that wants to project all that other stuff to the world. Uh, it's our ego that wants to defend us against against perceiving that we're wrong or perceiving that we're not winning or stop us from being emotionally uncomfortable. Think about all the times that you've avoided things because you're afraid of being emotionally uncomfortable, right? And think of all the opportunities you've missed. Uh, think, I mean, I, I'm just thinking about me, but all the opportunities I've missed, because I didn't want to be uncomfortable, whether it was asking somebody out on a date, not taking a hard class in college. There's a, a number of things we do because we don't want to be uncomfortable, we don't want to fail. That's our ego protecting us.
1: And that's, that's so great because as human beings, um, we are constantly striving for comfort. That that's like yep, yep, yep. almost our default set and yep, yep, so yep. we have to learn to sit almost like sitting in the fire, to sit in being uncomfortable. I, I would put it like, be brave enough to be uncomfortable which then reminds me of, of a young firefighter asking you, um, is courage something that you learn or is it something you're born with? So how do, how do we learn to be courageous and be uncomfortable?
2: I think um, to begin with, because we're human beings, we are courageous. Um, our culture teaches us that we don't have to be, right? Our culture constantly teaches like you said, that like, it's about being comfortable, it's about taking the easy path, right? Uh, and the, and there's two problems with that. Life is uncomfortable. comfortable. Life is hard. Life is difficult. You don't. No matter who you are, you don't get away from that. Secondly, we are courageous. We have to rediscover our courage. Um, and I, I I think in in a simple way, there are a lot of things I would do differently if, in educating children about that. One of my one of my if I was in charge of education, everybody would work in retail. <laughs> That'd be the first thing they would do. <laughs> right? You know, you'd learn some courage, work in retail for a little bit. And the other one is spend time in the wilderness in hour bound, uh, where you, uh, and places like that, where you really get an opportunity to stretch yourself.
1: I'm here with Hirsch Wilson. He is the author of Firefighters Zen. And if you want to know more about his work, go to his website, hirschwilson.com or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Here with Hirsch Wilson, and he's the author of Firefighters Zen, a field guide to thriving in tough times. And we're recording this in the early fall or late summer of uh, 2020. And we're right in the middle of the pandemic. Over 200,000 people have died at this point uh, from the COVID 19. And I'm just wondering. What what advice would you give us for these times that we're living in right now? We're all in this one together,
2: right? Um, a couple of things. I would say it's it's one of those amazing times, frightening times in history, at least since I've been around, um, where we can't be on the sidelines, right? This is not a time to be on the sidelines. This is not a time to say I I can't make a difference. Uh, I'm just going to watch what happens. We need to be involved we need to be involved um i remember 19 in, in the 1968 that year which was a traumatic year this is that times 10. We need to break that down so what what do i need in order to be really involved and i think first of all we need to be brave we need to be brave we need to ask ourselves every day what is the bravest thing i could do today what is the bravest thing i can do um and we need to really follow through on that i think um Secondly, uh, uh, what just calls out to me is that um, we're living in, in such a divisive time that what we need are not people who are great orators, great speakers. We need people who are kind. We need people who can be kind um, in all kinds of circumstances to, that we're listen, listening and empathic and understanding of what people are going through. Because I think a lot of what we're seeing is fear, just fear all over the place. And if we can be kind, if we can listen and be empathic, I think we can help break down some of the defensiveness and fear that we're seeing. So those are my two big things. I think finally is um, we're here to be useful. We're here to make a difference. I don't think there's been a time, again, in recent history where it's more important to be useful. And whether that's helping people get out the boat or, or, or whether it's really volunteering to help with the pandemic um, learning about racial justice now is top of mind. Those are things that are really important, and we can be useful. We can be useful.
1: Hirsch, there's there's a question. Sometimes when uh, talking about the way we conduct our lives, sometimes instead of going at it directly and and asking how can I be of help, mm-hmm. is like using a kind of opposite question. And and you had a, a question about that 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 really popped for me. Do you recall what what's one of those questions might be?
2: Sure, I think a lot of it has to do with being able to be, to kind of stop in a, in a moment and kind of think about what I'm doing, right? Think about what I'm thinking about. And a question that we can use is, if I don't take this step, what are the consequences, right? What's gonna happen? Because we don't do that. I mean, I think what you talked about earlier is we just, crave comfort and go the comfortable way without thinking about it and occasionally we have to stop and say what are the consequences if i if i don't do the right thing what are the consequences if i don't do the braver thing uh and and sit with that for a minute and that can help motivate you to do what you you know you need to do
1: yeah it was very meaningful to me to just kind of contemplate oftentimes i have avoided something so to go for that question oh well, what if I don't do this? Right. I can remember a lot of times in my life when I didn't do something and the consequences of that. So that's kind of what you're referring to is, is that? Yeah,
2: absolutely, absolutely. And a lot of it, has to start, it starts with realizing we can't be on an automatic pilot in our lives. We can't just be the, you know, going for comfort, going for comfort, going. We have to stop and ask three fundamental questions. Why am I here? Right? What is my life about? Uh, and what am I going to do about it? right? and if we if we kind of have that as our North star, um, I, I think not only will we find joy, but we'll will be we'll be um, in service to the world, in service to individuals at a much higher level.
1: and in doing those questions, um I know early in the book, and i I did this for myself, you suggested that we do it's something that you learned, I believe, very early on in your life a timeline of our life, right. and I know, do you? Yeah, mean, yeah. yeah it, gets, it <laughs> yeah. gets
2: scary, yeah. It gets yeah. scary, so right. can
1: you describe that timeline?
2: Sure, 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 so uh, it's just a simple exercise that you can do in a napkin. What you do is you take a piece of paper, and on the left-hand side of the paper, you draw a dot, and under, underneath that, you put the year you were born. Easy, right? And then at the other end of the line, you put a dot, and you put the year you're gonna die. Right, and you can get that from how long your grandparents lived, or your parents lived, or, or you know, just in general, you can figure that out. Now that's hard. Just that act act is hard to say. Oh, here's just a solid and concrete: the the day you're going to die is the day you were born. So that's your lifeline. Now what we do is say you take another dot and put it uh, on the line that represents today. Right? In my family, um, most die around 85. 85, 86, I'm 70. So I put, I put a dot that represents 70. So I I think I have 15 more years, right? That can be kind of terrifying, right? It can be terrifying. Even if you're 50, you might only have 40 more years, right? And just making it, you know, definite and defining and concrete is a wake up call. Now that'll go away that fear will go away because we're addicted to the solution that we're gonna live forever, that we have time. But Buddha said the greatest mistake we we make is believing we have time and we don't. And because there's another part of this and that's the glitch. And the glitch is that either one of us could die tomorrow, right? Life is fragile, life is unpredictable. And and so once once you grasp that once you grasp those two facts that you don't have a lot of time and that life is fragile. Nothing is, nothing is given, then that motivates those three questions we talked about. Why am I here? How much time do I have left to do what I want to do, to become who I want to become? And it gives you a sense of urgency that is really important. And the urgency is kind of reality, right? Uh, and I think the other part of it is to lay in bed tonight. When you go to bed tonight, just imagine the time that goes before you were born. It stretches out into infinity. And the time after you die, it stretches out into infinity. And we are just a speck, this tiny speck on the timeline, right? That's all we have, right? That's all we have to live our lives, to love, to forgive, to find joy, to make a difference. It's a speck in time. And Once we understand that, once we understand that, we'll get on living our lives, I think, more honestly and more authentically and with more joy.
1: So what you're describing in uh this powerful exercise which I did and I I use like from the time now to the time I die I use these li- little slanted lines to show the years kind of right. depict the years and I saw wow how few of them there are and how mm. few years I have from my predicted if right. no glitch kind of right. grabs me and throws me over the handlebars of my life, I'm able to accomplish what I want. And in what I want to accomplish, what you just spoke about, seems like we're going more for qualities rather than things.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's the story of Midas, right? You know, Midas had the gift to turn everything everything he touched into gold. Well, that's kind of cool. But then he, he touched his daughter and turned her into gold. And now she was gone, right? And I think that's a metaphor for all of us who are in pursuit of material things. Uh, there's there's nothing wrong with with being comfortable. There's nothing wrong uh, with being able to support yourself. But uh, there was a study that said, and usually anything over what we would call $80,000 or $60,000 a year doesn't make any difference in terms of our happiness. So I'm out for happiness and joy, and, and and those are the things that I'm looking for. And they're not – you don't get that by pursuing the latest car or the latest house.
1: Now, Hirsch, I know that you are in your 60s, and you continue to be a volunteer firefighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, I imagine, and I imagine – and I think that you have said, and I, I know I have said, I, I want to continue to be as useful as I can – until the end people ask yeah. me how long how long are you aren't you going to retire from new dimensions and i'm going yeah uh well it gives me joy and i hope yeah. it's helpful you know yeah. uh, and yeah. so you still are a firefighter these days so uh uh how, how how long what what do you think
2: well like everybody i think the pandemic is kind of uh, you know because i'm on a furlough now uh from the fire department because of the pandemic um so we'll see. I think a lot of people have been forced into making changes that they were not ready to make. So my question now is, how can I be useful? Can I train? Uh, can I help in other ways in the fire department? Because right now I'm not allowed to go out on calls. So that's just, you know, it's like life is unpredictable. You've you got to kind of roll with the punches.
1: But I would think that there's something uh, very useful uh, about Your experience. You're being at it for so long. 30 years of experience is not to be taken lightly. Well, I don't. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Hersha, we've run out of time talking about experience and conversations. We've run out of time in this conversation, and I just thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions.
2: Well, thank you so much. It was just a joy to
1: be here. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. I've been here with Hirsch Wilson. He is the author of Firefighter Zen, A Field Guide to Thriving in Tough Times. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, hirschwilson.com. And he spells his name H-E-R-S-C-H, hirschwilson.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I've been speaking with firefighter Hirsch Wilson at his home by Remote Connection. He's the author of Firefighter's Zen, A Field Guide to Thriving in Tough Times. If you want to learn more about his work and his writings, go to Hirschwilson.com. He spells his name H-E-R-S-C-H, Hirschwilson.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening. To New Dimensions. This is program number 3714.
0: New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine willis toms Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, Please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707 468 5215. That's 707 468 5215. Please join us next time as we explore new dimensions.